You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. What a what a great video! Uh, Lucas and Creda are just incredible uh, leaders and friends in our church community. And so, uh, one of the things that we're anticipating to get more back to in person is you can meet some of the incredible people that are in our church, not just the people that are up on the screen. If you don't know who I am, my name is Richard, and welcome to you if you're joining us. Maybe if you join us for the first time, or maybe you're still relatively new to this uh, community, checking us out, and then to the vast majority of you who are part of it. I think of people watching from Oshawa to Scarborough to Gosh, where Richmond Hill to Brandon. North York. I don't know where that is, but yes, Brandon to Brandon. downtown Brampton, Mississauga. I was getting there. I was moving east oh, to west, uh, downtown Toronto, Mississauga, Etobicoke. My family's in Etobicoke, and uh, we're coming to you from Waterloo, from our church um, studio here in Waterloo. So great joy to be able to do this. And uh, again, just to plug for those of you that haven't come out to our pop-up service, we're in a rhythm of once a month, the first Sunday, try and, and put it in your calendar and, and clear the deck. And it's just been such a great time to re- be reunited together in person. And we want to pick up that pace uh, as we're able to do so. All right, we're going to jump in. Today is Palm Sunday, has already been mentioned, a very significant day in the church calendar. If this is all kind of new to you, what is Palm Sunday? It sounds weird. Church is weird. Christmas Christians are weird, probably, but um, it's very symbolic. It's it's uh, historically when Jesus um, entered into Jerusalem, as we heard, uh, riding the donkey, and they were using palm branches to uh, palm. Palm branch is very significant at that time, very symbolic of um, triumph and victory, and. Um, Athletes in ancient Greece, when they were competed and won, they were given one of their prizes was a it was a palm branch, and so it was very symbolic. And um, it's it's also very uh, bizarre to see how quickly uh, we can be fickle as a people, because on Sunday evening they're praising him, and by Friday they shout and crucify him, and so that is indicative of the human nature. We can be a very fickle bunch, but thank God God isn't. That God is consistent. That God is trustworthy. That God does know what he's doing, like Lucas said, that he is a father who genuinely knows what's best, but wants what's best for us. And so it's fitting that we're talking about triumph and victory today because we're um, inching towards uh, Easter Sunday next Sunday, and we've been in this series looking at what what the, how do we make sense of the cross. And so um, today we're talking about the cross and victory. What does it look like uh, to have victory out of this incredibly scandalous event. And the key scripture we've been using is from Paul's, uh, from Paul the Apostle. And he says, we preach Christ, but not just Christ's teaching, not just Christ turn the other cheek, Christ crucified. Very interesting that they would highlight the um, horrible way in which Jesus died. He says it's a stumbling block and foolishness for some people, right? And even today we can see that. Some people think it's ridiculous. You, you believe in that or what does it accomplish? Um, but the earliest Christians began to see it as the power and wisdom of God. And we're trying to figure out, we've been trying to explore what is that power? What is that wisdom? How would we to make sense of the cross? And so um, my kids, when they were younger and as they discovered words and didn't know what words were meaning, they would come to us and say, what does this word mean? And you know, in the English language, as in probably other languages, but in the English language particularly, words can have various meanings. And so one of the key questions we'd ask them back is, well, in what context was it used? Or what was the sentence? Or how did you hear that word? And once we understood the the context that they heard that, we were able to bring understanding and meaning specifically to that particular word. And I think like 
that's like it for a lot of things. Context is so important, right? If you're in a movie or you walk into a movie, you're walking into a context. And if you don't know what's going on, you're going to be that annoying person that keeps going, what, who's this person? Who's that person? Why are they doing that? And you just want to turn them and say, hey, could you just watch the movie from beginning to end? Because you would get the context. And the context would help inform you to understand what's going on and what meaning you're to derive from what's going on. And I think about this as I think about it. We come up to one of the most significant weekends in the Christian calendar, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a 2,000-plus year historical event that we're still asking and trying to, what is, the, what is the meaning of the cross that we need to derive from? And so, again, for us, well, we've got to understand the context that's different to us being in 21st century Toronto or Canada, wherever you are watching this. We've got to kind of go back in a time capsule to understand that. And Paul, the apostle, writes again further in Corinthians, and he gives us the context, at least for them, how they were understanding, how they were interpreting the death of Jesus, so much so that it wasn't scandalous, it wasn't foolishness, it wasn't ridiculousness. It began to be something that they gloried in, boasted in, and literally gave their lives for. And so what is what understanding are they getting? And so he gives us a hint in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Ah, context. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Again, he says, in accordance to the Scriptures. In other words, the death of Christ makes most sense when we understand the story Scripture is telling. And if we don't understand the story, if we get the story wrong or, or we, we um, get a, a fragment of the story, then we're going to devalue the meaning uh, that the cross has even for us today. So if you've been around Every Nation GTA long enough, you've probably heard this before, but we love to, it's not ours, but we love to say that the, the, the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, there's a chunk of stuff in there, but it really is a story, one story that moves through four parts, if you will, very simplistically. Creation, God creates a great world, puts mankind in the center of it, and we're to enjoy him in his presence and image him in the world. Tragically, we decide to take things into our own hands. It's called the fall. Our disobedience leads to sin infecting everything in the world, not just us personally, but cosmically. Everything begins stained and tainted. But God decides to redeem, do something about that. And that's the chunk of what your Bible is, is that part of the story. And then the last couple of chapters in Revelation, in Revelation, the last two chapters really mirror the first two chapters that God restores, brings about a new creation and a new heaven. And that's something that we look forward to. And so that's the context that the story of scripture is telling. And there's lots of different characters going on there, but ultimately that's what it's about and how Jesus enters into that story. Now, for many of us, for many of us who are Christians and many of us who have perhaps been around church for a long time, you're probably very familiar with the full redemption part of that story, right? In other words, you might have heard or understood the cross like this. We're sinners, done wrong. We fail God's standard. God must punish sin because he's holy. Jesus steps in the way of our punishment, dies on the cross, satisfies God so that we're forgiven and now we can go to heaven, right? Some version, some form of that is the is what we maybe are very familiar with that story. Even people who are not Christians are probably familiar with that, like the hell Hell firestone, you know, firestone and hell brim, brimstone. I'm getting it all messed up, muddled up. But those guys that just bang the Bible and repent.
repent. You know, God's a God of judgment. And so uh, it's not to say that that's untrue. It's just very myopic. It's very narrow view and certainly not the dominant context that the earliest Christians would have understood what Jesus is saying. So maybe we understand that part, but it's creation for redemption restoration or new creation how are we to understand the story from a creation restoration point of view how does the cross fit into that narrative let's dive into there because i think there's something there and so the old testament is telling that comprehensive story a single compelling comprehensive story anticipating god's rescue uh, the establishment of god's rule his reign his kingdom different ways to say the same thing and ultimately how his presence would once again come and be joined back with his people and israel's story really is that story and israel's story if you look at it on a macro picture really parallels the story of adam and eve it's a story about exile and return it's a homecoming we've been exiled from the presence of God, but God in his loving kindness wants to be restored back into relationship with mankind and goes about doing that by choosing Abraham, by choosing a nation Israel through which he would be a blessing to the world. And so it's a story of looking to God to restore. It's a story of looking to God to redeem, to make things right again, to uh, bring heaven on earth again, not the other way around. We, we kind of seem to flip it like it's all about leaving earth and getting to heaven. That's really not how they were thinking uh, what God was up to and what God was doing through Jesus on the cross. And so that's the context now in accordance with the scriptures. If that's the context, let's dive in and have a look at the story from a different angle. Same story, but just a different way to frame it. And today's passage is going to be from Romans chapter 5. And it's a weighty, meaty passage. Definitely will not do it justice, but it does give us the overall point and theme of that God was up to something, not just purchasing forgiveness for sins. We covered um, in the previous message on how the cross brings about an atonement for our sin. And it's interesting, you might think like, wow, these are all words that sound very churchy, but I was literally watching a sports event yesterday, a soccer game, MLS soccer game. And the commentator, I hadn't seen the whole game, I was catching the last few minutes, but he was talking about a certain player, how this player needs to atone for his sins of what he did earlier in the match. And I thought that's so interesting. And here we are in 21st century and he's using language we understand what atonement means. It shows up in movies. It shows up in pop culture. We understand that if something's gone wrong, something needs to be made right for it. And so here we are. It's not just that we need forgiveness of sins, that we need fixing, right? And so it's not to diminish that the, the cross is a picture of God's forgiveness, a forgiveness of sins, but God's doing so much more than just the forgiveness of your sin and the forgiveness of my sin and the forgiveness of the world's sin. And that's what we want to try and explore a little bit today. And I, I'm trusting that it would, it would embolden and inflame your heart with such hope and such uh, just joy and just such an amazement at what God's done through Jesus. So verse 12, we're going to read up to verse 21. Um, here we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, or all mankind, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Listen to that language. He was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, meaty. And, and maybe some of that, it's like, oh, what's he saying here? And so I'm going to try my best to just stick to the main thing here, but maybe what's helpful is to put in the table what he's outlining. And so he talks about Adam. He talks about our first parents. Now, I don't want to go into a rabbit trail. I don't know what you believe. You believe in historic Adam, even symbolic Adam. But for the purpose of this, it seems that the Apostle Paul, even Jesus, believed in a historical, physical Adam. But the point is that Adam represented mankind, humanity. It's in his name. And in doing so, whatever Adam and Eve chose to do would it result in affecting all of us. We know this. Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your parents, they made decisions that didn't just affect them, that affect you and generations to come. So we have this understanding of... Of, of someone representing a whole lot of other people. You know, our countries are set up on that. Ambassadors. We understand that principle. You might think, gosh, it's unfair. Like, I wasn't there. I, I might have done differently. So, you know, we might feel justified, but what works against us in Adam works for us in Jesus. So, hold on. But it says that Adam, in representing humanity, he was the, the head of a of, of a relationship with God and humanity, it said that his disobedience, and here's the table, it says his disobedience resulted in sin, so, so that we're now declared sinners, that sin infects all of us, and it brings the verdict of that is, is a death sentence, and it's a death sentence not just in a physical sense, but in every which way, socially, uh, just death spiritually, emotionally, even cosmically, there's a sense and a stench of death in God's creation that never was meant to be there. And we're told that all who are in Adam, you and I, this is our lot in life. And so Adam is the head of humanity, this human race, but it's of the fallen humanity. And so he stands as proxy for us. He stands as representatives for us. And so Paul's trying to frame the biblical story by trying to locate you and I in one of two families. Um, the now we go to Christ, and it, it contrasts, and it's, it even says in the passage that Adam was a type of the one to come. And so Christ, actually, in some of uh, Paul's other writings, is actually called the last Adam or the second man or the second Adam. In other words, he also was a representative of the human race. He also was standing there in proxy for the human race, and his, his actions, his decisions were going to have ramifications for a whole lot of people just like Adam. Only he did something far better. He obeyed. And his obedience led to grace. So those, sorry, those should be the other way around. His obedience led to grace, not sin. And where grace abounded, it now declares us righteous. It declares us in right standing with God. It, it was as if we led the life Jesus led. Isn't that kind of a little 
mind-blowing right there. But that's how, uh, how good Jesus is at what he did for us. And instead of a death sentence, it's all that have their faith in Christ. It's not a death sentence. It's a life sentence. Sure, your physical body may die one day. Not may die. will die. But the hope is, and what we're going to celebrate next year, next year, next week, is resurrection. That even if this body dies, the hope of the Christian is that life continues on uh, in Jesus and with Jesus for all who are in Christ. And so Christ is also the head of the human race, but a new humanity, not fallen humanity, a new humanity. Okay, so hopefully that helps you a little bit understanding the contrast. And Paul does a, 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 a um, he does a, uh, a well-known kind of rhetorical uh, technique here of great, lesser to greater. If if Adam was like this, how much more is Christ like this? And so it's amazing to see that. If if Adam's sin and disobedience affected and stained everything, well, how much more does Jesus' gift of righteousness and grace also begin to infect and change everything? And so the first humanity, we can say it like this, is patterned after the tragic story of Adam. And thus a humanity that's scarred by the curse of sin and death, hostility and futility. It's described as being in Adam. One of my earliest sermons I can read, I actually was looking at it in preparation for this message, was are you hanging, the title was, are you hanging with the wrong Adam's family? Because Adam's family was a big deal back then, dating myself, the Adam's family, kind of quirky family. And uh, But in, in, in a very simple way, not simplistic, but very simple way, the, the Bible really puts us in one of two camps. Are you... Are you under in Adam or are you in Christ? And so what story do you want to be a part? Like we have a choice now of what story we want to live and participate in. The new humanity is patterned after the story of Jesus. And it's described as being in, in Christ, marked off by his death and resurrection. Another way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Or in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a well-known scripture for Christians, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a new humanity. There's a new day, a new beginning. Something is happening at the cross. That's not just the forgiveness of sins, not just the appeasing of a holy God, but a new day, a new Genesis 1, if you will, a new creation, a new humanity, patterned not after Adam, but this Christ, this God-man, Jesus Christ. The old has passed away behold the new has come not is coming has come has come this is why christians should get excited for things like easter i know we need to we need to um you don't have easter without good friday and that's what we're trying to marinate in here but we also know where the story is going and so where to have this context this story should be the way that we're living in this world and it helps us to see the world through god's eyes through different eyes so coming back to our human problem well what is the human problem well the human problem is sin it's that disobedience and that sin uh, that led to the fall of our of adam that is our problem but but what do we mean by sin? Because I think in one of the previous messages, we talked about sin a lot. And I think a lot of times we hear sin, and even in pop culture, sin, it's, it's doing something wrong. It's, it's the lists of do's and don'ts. You know, Christianity is about do's and don'ts. And if you, if you don't get it right, you've done wrong. You, you sin, you, 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 whatever. You lie, you cheat, you do some things. 
And so, yeah, in, in a sense it is, but it's so much more than that as well, right? Um, sin, one of the most often used words in sin means missing the mark. It's like an archery term. You just miss the bullseye. And again, pretend, you know, in the full redemption story that we know so well, we see that, oh yeah, I missed the mark. I missed the mark of God's standards, of God's moral laws, of his Ten Commandments, whatever it is. True, but not the not what missing the mark fully means. Sin is missing the mark because it means we miss the mark of what it genuinely means to be human. Adam failed in that responsibility. To be genuinely human is to worship God, have God in his right place in our lives, and then to bear his image into creation, to cultivate, to care, to steward, to build a family, to build businesses, to build a society. That, And as we do that, we do that in the presence of God, and we reflect that and glory and worship back to God. And so that's what it means to be fully human, is to bear the image of God and to worship God and have him in his rightful place in our lives. But when that order gets messed up, when sin begins to turn that uh, worship and love of God inward onto other things, um, that's when we miss the mark. We miss the mark of what it genuinely means to be human. And so when Adam and Eve, when they abdicated their role, their, their role, their, their vocational role, their calling, if you will, to bear God's image into the world, to reign in life, let's use what Paul the Apostle says, reign in life, the powers of sin and death and Satan entered it into that vacuum. And we give away a certain level of our influence, of our power as humanity made in the image of God over to them. And it says the result, death reigned. Death reigned. It's it's pretty tragic. Uh, again, N.T. Wright puts it beautifully. He says, when you worship that which is not God, you give to that idol some of the power you were given to exercise as a human in image bearing. And they, the power, will use that power against you. You know, I think you think about, oftentimes we see this pretty clearly in addiction, right? You see someone enslaved to a power that they're just unable to escape from um, themselves. They need intervention or whatever. And so, yes, that is a picture of when we give ourselves over to something, it can have a demonic evil power in our lives, but not just in addiction, you can put it into the boardrooms. You can put it into all of our lives. We give over power to things in our lives that were never meant to have that power over us because we abdicate our role. That's what N.T. Wright, that's what Paul's talking about. And so it's helpful. We come back to this. We've mentioned this before, but it's helpful. And we're getting somewhere here. I'm belaboring these points. But it's helpful then to think about our problem as sins and sin, to make a distinction between sins and sin. Uh, this is a quote we used uh, earlier in the series, but it's worth repeating. It says, one can speak of sin producing sins, a power that produces sins. The power of sin which holds sway over humanity works itself out in the specific sins of individual persons. Those attitudes and behaviors which work against God's purposes for humanity as created in God's image. This is our story. This Adam and Eve story. This is our story. We're in need of not just forgiveness from our sins, which we are, and Jesus atones for that. He makes right on our behalf for that. But we need not just of forgiveness, but fixing. We're broke. We need fixing. We need restoration. We need redemption. We need to be restored back to our original calling and purpose to reign in life. And this is the other side of the cross that we see. This is the cross and victory that God is establishing a victory over those powers of sin, death, 
and Satan so that you and I can once again be restored back to our original calling to worship God in his rightful place and to bear his image into the world. And so how does Jesus accomplish this? Well, let's go back to Romans 5, verse 18 to 19. But I'm going to use the message version of the Bible because I think it's a great refreshing way to look at it. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. Maybe it was unfair that we're grouped up with Adam and Eve, but how much more is it unfair that we get swept up in Christ's obedience, in Christ's grace, in his abundant life, and declaring us righteous? And so you can fight it over here, or you can lay down your arms and say, yeah, man, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I have a Savior in Jesus Christ who doesn't just forgive my sins, but delivers me from powers that want to uh, enslave me and want to use me against the purposes of God. And so we see Jesus does that. He, he, both atonement and deliverance it speaks to our human condition. It's the Exodus story. We don't just need the, the Passover sacrificial lamb to, to put on our doorposts, to put on our lives, to, to pull, to, to pass over us in judgment, but we need one who would take us out of the enslavement of Pharaoh and Egypt and bring us into the promised land. Jesus literally at the Passover is being slain for us to be that one who atones for our sins, past, present, future. You're declared righteous in Christ, in, G, in God's eyes, but also delivers us out of the power, the powers that be that would want to hold sway over us. Jesus restores to us this right to reign in life. It's the language Paul uses. It's the right to reign in life. Uh, John calls it eternal life. Uh, the Gospels call it the kingdom of God. It's the rule and the reign of God in you and I as individuals, and then once again us exercising it back out into his creation. That's how the early church came to understand the cross and see it as the ultimate victory of God. No wonder they gloried in it. No wonder they boasted in it. No wonder they were not ashamed of this gospel because it had the power. It was the wisdom of God wrapped up in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Uh, before we close with some application, Fleming Rutledge says it like this, the love of God cannot be defeated. That's what we see in the crucifixion and the resurrection if you have the resurrection, then you have no sense of anything being defeated. You have no sense of Jesus having taken anything on. In the crucifixion, Jesus has taken on everything satanic, everything evil, everything demonic, everything sinful, everything wrong. In the resurrection, we see that he has been vindicated and that his victory is complete. So, how are we? To understand the cross, understanding the cross. As we, as we wrap up this part and we, we look ahead towards the cross and resurrection in next Sunday's message, um, how are we to understand the meaning of the cross? And I, I put a little cross there on the screen because I think it's helpful to remember. It's three, three directions. 
So the cross is doing something upward. It's atoning for our sins before a holy God. We've covered that. But the cross is also doing something downward. It's taking over victory over sin, Satan, death. And it's also then showing us the example of God's love sideways and an example to us of what sacrificial love actually really looks like. The cross is a picture of God's love coming through his judgment on sin and his mercy over us as sinners. But ultimately, it is a picture of his love and because it's a picture of his love we're to go and do likewise um, John Layton is, is his letter says it like this this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters what a high standard he's calling us to love but we do that as we experience the love of God that God this himself the creator of the universe would humble himself humiliate himself on my behalf to show his love for me and not just for me, for all, for his, his creation, that then I too can go and love other people likewise. And not just the nice people, right? Like Jesus isn't just dying for the nice people, the good people. He's dying for the ungodly. I mean, think of the ungodliest people you can think of right now. He's dying for those people as well as people who may think they're not as bad as those people. So it's understanding the cross, but then it's applying the cross. How do we apply this to our lives, applying the meaning of the cross? And, uh, and there's many different ways, but two I want to highlight here for you is, is that the cross, the victory, the victory that God purchases for us, this victory that Jesus has, this new creation and new humanity invites you in. He invites you into a new family that he is the head of with a new um, disposition, a new character, the sinful nature uh, being done away with, being replaced by Christ's nature in us. He invites us. It brings about a freedom from sin. And it's a freedom from sin in, in a, in a multidimensional way. It's the freedom from the penalty of sin that there is a penalty but that's been done away with past present future that my sin past present and future has been done away with and settled before God and so what am I called to do in response to that to trust and rest in Christ's finished work I know it's hard sometimes to think about that because we're going to move we're, we're still we still sin right we're not perfect we will get there we'll make sense of that but we, as Christians, you've got to hold things in tension here. But make no mistake, Christ's work is finished. He's not coming back again to do that. He, God is satisfied with his work of atoning for our sin. And so when you and I are faced with our sin, we're to say, thank you, God, that you have forgiven me for my sin. For sins I don't even have yet to do. But then it's also in the present that God has not just forgiven my sin and atoned for the penalty of my sin, but he's done something about the power of sin. He's broken the power of sin in my life and our lives. So much so that we can now live free from sin. But you say, well, yeah, okay, but I still sin. In fact, many of us, we still battle with, with sin that seems to dominate our lives. And that is a reality, right? That is a reality that that we face, that we are in a new human, a new creation, but not yet do we see it in its fullness. But make no mistake that we're to persevere in our battle against sin. We're to persevere in our battle against the against evil. We're to persevere in these things. And it's 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 the antithesis of being a fatalism. Well, this is just it. I'm just waiting for Jesus to return. No, there is a kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. There's a new day, a new creation. We get to participate with him. And then one day we look forward that not only will, has the penalty of sin be dealt with, the power of sin has been broken, but the very presence of sin will one day be eradicated fully from your life, from our society, 
and from God's creation and God's cosmos. And we're to have an anticipation for that day. We're to have a hope for that day. And we're to work towards that day. We're to work towards uh, righting wrongs where we Writing wrongs where we can in this world, bringing about justice where there's injustice, where there's evil, bringing light where there's, um, where there's brokenness and healing you that we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus and joining him in that work. And so it's freedom from something, but it's also freedom for that we can now enter into again our vocation as being image bearers of God, that we're freedom for a new humanity and joining God in the renewal of all things uh, as we see him do that across the world. And so the question for you and I right now at the end of the story, as uh, Adam, as, as Paul framed, reframed that story for us in Adam, in Christ, what story is your life a part of? What story are you living? Which ancestry are you coming from in Adam or in Christ because whatever story you find yourself in will affect everything in your life and to live out from your identity of being in that story of being in Christ that's the invitation that's what the cross invites us into a new beginning a new st start therefore anyone who's in Christ is a new creation not just born again so I can go to heaven know that a new creation that I can have a new relationship with God and I can begin to work with God right here right now extending his kingdom what story are you in you've been listening to a message from every nation gta thanks for joining us for more information visit our website at everynationgta.org